0: The Lead from the Heart podcast is sponsored by Mitel Networks, a Canadian-based telecommunications company with offices all around the world. Mitel's goal is to create a company culture that inspires courage, empathy, and kindness, and it seeks to be part of the global movement to build humane workplaces where people want to come and do great work. Mitel is also very proud to be the sole sponsor of this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about them, find them at mitel.com forward slash Mark. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Hard Podcast. Just a few years ago, the Thinkers 50 organization named my guest today the greatest leadership thinker on the planet. As a quick aside, this year's recipient was Harvard Business School professor Amy C. Edmondson, who's been a two-time guest on our show. But back to Roger Martin, he is a professor emeritus at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management and the author of a new book, Forbes Magazine, named one of the 10 must read career and leadership books for 2022. Throughout a career of advising CEOs at some of the world's most successful companies, Roger Martin noted that almost every executive he talked to had a, what he calls a model, a framework, way of thinking that guided their strategy and activities and he also noted that these models tended to become automatic instinctive so much so that when one didn't work the typical response was just to apply it again with greater enthusiasm. And this idea that managers tend to double down on the execution of a strategy rather than evaluate if the plan itself is flawed is just one of the ways he believes managers must change their leadership thinking. In his book, Martin cites an Ernst & Young survey which found that 81% of executives believe that data should be at the heart of all decision-making. And while MBA programs have been trying to turn management into a science for the past six decades, Martin argues that data implies certainty, something no leader can rely on. And in his words, quote, creating great choices requires imagination rather than data. A purely scientific approach to business decision-making has serious limitations. Martin's book is called A New Way to Think, Your Guide to Superior Management. And we've invited him to share several more ways leaders like us must change our mindsets about numerous aspects of workplace leadership. And with that brief introduction, let me welcome you to the podcast, Roger Martin.
1: Hey, it's great to be with you, Mark. I'm looking forward to it. Well, thank you.
0: I don't remember the last time I had a guest calling in from Hawaii, so aloha. <laughs> Let's get right to your book. Right at the beginning, you say that whenever managers find that their model in other words, their way of thinking, implementation, their practice isn't producing the desired outcome, they almost automatically assume that the model wasn't applied rigorously enough. And so they double down on their efforts rather than put their entire model into question. So let's start with this basic yet extremely important example of why you believe leaders need a new way of thinking.
1: Well, an example would be shareholder value maximization. So that came into being in 1976, really, so almost 50 years ago, when there was a theory, a model that said you should maximize shareholder value. And the way to do that is to give your CEO and senior executives stock-based incentive compensation. And so that was a model. And the idea was, and all models to get accepted have to sound good, right? So it was, well, if the shareholders do well, then management will do well economically. And if they do poorly, they'll both do poorly. So it aligns the interests of management and shareholders. And that sounds great. But if you look at have returns to shareholders improved in the period following 1976 versus the period before it, the answer is definitively not. There is no noticeable change. And we've had a bunch of other things happening which is multi-billion dollar accounting fraud has now become commonplace. So I'd be thinking that everybody would be asking the question, you know what? Maybe this model of giving managers stock-based compensation, paying CEOs uh, huge uh, kind of bonuses for shareholder value performance, Mm -hmm. that if it doesn't work, shouldn't we maybe try something else? But... It just doesn't happen. And I think people like models. If they sound like a sensible model, they just stick with them. And that is bad for everyone involved.
0: Well, we've lived with this model for a really long time and, you know, 45, 50 years. And I do want to make sure that we all understand what you're saying, because if there's been this corporate focus on shareholder value... The stock market is at all-time highs right now. So when you say there's been no noticeable change in success, couldn't CEOs argue that it's been very successful? In other words, what are the metrics?
1: The metrics are just returns to shareholders over long periods of time. And the returns to shareholders post-76 are not better than they were pre-76. So yeah, the stock market happens to be high now. And that's great. I'm glad. I'm glad all the pension funds have got more money in the coffers. But you'd have to have some demonstration that there was a statistically significant jump in performance of shareholders after we moved to heavy stock-based compensation. And there isn't.
0: I didn't know that. That's actually very helpful to know. So one question I have for you before we move on is how can you apply what we just talked about to the individual manager? Meaning they have a strategy, doesn't pay off, and they double down on the strategy rather than look at maybe my model isn't the appropriate one and we've got to revisit that and approach it from a different way. Yeah, that's
1: the I guess the muscle that I'm arguing that managers, if they want to succeed and really make a difference, need to develop, which is to, when they use a model, what they have to do is essentially write down on a piece of paper what they expect the model to produce so that they can go back to that piece of paper and look and see whether it did or not. Because we've got a great ability to expose, rationalize. You know if you say well if we make this investment our sales will go up 50 percent in five years and if you get out five years and it's up 30 percent if you didn't write it down you'll convince yourself that yeah yeah you said sales will go up 30 percent what you have to do is be more conscious of making explicit what you expect the model to produce so that you can go back and check because if you go back and check and it didn't produce what you wish then you'll be more motivated to make a change. And I'll just give you a little example from my background. So I was part of the leadership team that grew a big consulting firm in the 80s and 90s called Monitor Company. And one of my many sort of directorial jobs was running the recruiting apparatus. And I became just kind of worried about whether we were actually hiring kind of the right people. We had a methodology for recruiting, where we recruited from, what kind of interviews we gave, blah, 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 blah. And so what I did with the recruiting folks is after we recruited a class of MBAs, mm-hmm. I said, I want us to force rank them in terms of our likely prediction of likely success as a consultant from one to, I think that year we hired 50 or something, one to 50. And what I did is I took that list. We got, it came to consensus and here's the list put it in my desk, didn't look at it for three years, tried to forget actually what was on the list so it wouldn't influence anything about behavior. And then after three years, we had objective measures of performance. I went back and checked whether there was any correlation between actual success and predicted success. And there was none. In fact, if anything, there was a negative correlation. The farther down on the list you were put, the more likely you were to succeed. And that enabled me to say, this isn't working. What we think we're finding, we're not finding. And we might as well have a chimp throwing darts at a dartboard with people's resume pictures on the dartboard as choosing. And we totally overhauled our system and did recruiting entirely differently.
0: Yeah. So let's go into that. So what did you learn? In other words, how did you recruit differently And then I'm going to give you a second question, which is the exercise that you're going through, does it necessarily need these three to five year windows or can we be evaluating our process sooner?
1: Sure, sure. What our model was, our theory was that more interviews are better. So actually to be a successful candidate, you had to complete 10 interviews to get a job at the uh, company. But what we discovered was that by each interviewer providing essentially their summary to the next interviewer, we were getting confirmation bias. So if the first interview said, well, pretty good, but you better check her or his quantitative skills, the next person would confirm that those skills weren't so great and the next person and the next person and the next person so it was a massive sort of confirmation bias so whatever the first interviewer said determined the outcome to a wildly disproportionate extent and you could see it if you looked at the notes of each successive reviewer And typically, the first reviewer was a junior screener type.
0: Yeah, right. With the least amount of experience, the least amount of perspective, and now they're steering the next nine interviews.
1: Exactly. And so we changed to a system where we had a very senior person do the first interview for starters to provide more intelligent screening. And then nobody down the line of interviews got to have any feedback from the person before. They were just told that this is what we'd like you to explore. And you just sort of segmented out, you know, I'd like you to explore kind of their quantitative skills. I'd like you to explore their interpersonal skills. I'd like you to explore how interesting or not their background was. So it wasn't because we had some issue. It was each person was assigned something different to explore. And our performance went way up in terms of ability to predict success.
0: How did you do that? In other words, I mean, I understand the refinements that you made, and they're very smart. How did you validate that all that intelligence that you applied to this and the disciplines of not having interviewer one talk to number two or three or nine so that there would be some great discussion at the end where nobody had any confirmation bias? How did you then confirm that all of that work paid off?
1: Well, there was a much stronger correlation between our upfront ranking, we did the same thing, upfront ranking, and their performance. Mm. So if we thought somebody was good, they had a very good chance of being good. So rather than being randomly surprised by somebody really failing, who we thought highly about in the old process, we had much less of that. It was harder to tell for sure that the average quality was higher. That's a really hard one to absolutely nail. But the fact that we could predict to a greater extent how people were gonna do gave me greater confidence in our recruiting process.
0: Did you later confirm that you didn't need 10 different interviews to hire these people?
1: Yeah, forwarded the drink.
0: Okay, good. That's actually what Google confirmed. They did their own internal study four or five years ago and came back and said anything more than four is is unnecessary.
1: So I figured, we figured that out 25 years ago.
0: Well, they were late. <laughs> they weren't around 25 years ago. I know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's nothing new under the sun sometimes, Roger, right?
1: True. There's lots of simultaneous invention and reinventing of the, of the same thing. But that was our finding circa 1993, four five. I think that is what that was.
0: Very good. Let's move on. In your chapter on competition, you assert that managers in the layer above workers, so directly above who directly serve the customer. So this is the manager of people who are on the front line. You say that they must start to better understand those workers' lives and their needs and step into their shoes. And so, as I was reading that, I was thinking, but that's really not the way we've ever done it. You know, we almost treat the one level as superior and the one level below as inferior. And specifically, like in retailing and Fast food restaurants, haven't they almost always sought to exploit rather than honor their frontline employees? So, is that where your starting point is? And you're saying you've got to reapproach it?
1: Absolutely. And one, I think your characterization is absolutely right on. It's like, I'm superior, you're inferior. My job is to control you to supervise you so that you do what I want you to do. And that's just completely backwards. The job of that second line person above the frontline worker is to do things, create things that help that frontline worker better serve their customer. And if they're not, then they're useless overhead.
0: How do you explain that paradigm, the enduring paradigm?
1: You know, I think a lot of management does have echoes of military. And I think the idea of sort of command and control is that the key thing is to control. As an organization gets bigger, you've got to make sure you have more and more controls built in. I think it probably migrated over from the military to a certain extent, though lots of people in the military would say, You know, we've learned that it is the folks on the front line making decisions that is absolutely critical to success. And what we need to do is be able to support their ability to make decisions, support their ability to fight the battle we need them to fight. And so I think perhaps this was a perception of how a good military organization works that morphed over into business. 50 years ago, or 75 years ago, or 100 years ago, hard to say exactly when, and hasn't caught up with where the military is today. But it's handy in some sense for senior management, right? Rather than senior management saying, I have got to demonstrate that we are adding more value to the levels below. Than we are costing in corporate overhead and uh, just the cost of control. That's harder. That's a harder job than to say, I just need to make sure that they understand who's in charge here.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're in Hawaii today, but you're generally in Canada. Do you know any retailers? Are there companies that have pivoted in the direction that you're advocating that you're very well aware of?
1: Sure. Costco is a great example. Costco recognizes that. It's interactions between their frontline workers in the stores and customers that are going to define the customer experience as either good or bad. And they see it as their job to put those people in a position, those frontline customer facing workers in a position to be able to serve customers better, which means cross-training them, which means having enough slack in the system so that when there are customers who really need something, that they don't have to wait forever to get somebody to help them to pay them well enough that they don't worry coming to work, whether they can put food on the table, have a house over them and their families' heads. And they love the frontline workers. And this has always been co-founder Jim Senegal's view. And when he walks, he's no longer CEO, but still he walks the stores and he's treated like a (laughs) like a god, but because they know that his primary concern is how well is the company supporting its workers in doing their job.
0: Any examples of companies that defy this? I have one that comes to mind, but I want to see if it, you do.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I think they're improving now. yeah, you know, kind of Walmart is now, mm-hmm. I think on a real improvement path, but I think for a kind of a long period of time, they just didn't. And I think the customer experience suffered dramatically Another great Canadian company that does a fantastic job at this is the Four Seasons Hotel chain. There is, again, a real focus on that frontline worker is going to make all the difference in the service quality experienced by the guest. And so we've got to help put them in a position, provide them tools that they can make sure that on the spot they can make decisions and serve guests well.
0: I didn't know the Four Seasons was established in Canada, but of course, they're global. So that's a great example. Yeah.
1: They're, they're toronto Is Izzy Sharp is a, a Canadian. I never first knew that. first three know. hotels were in uh, the greater Toronto area.
0: Very good. So let's go back to the very beginning here. And so why is it the companies that don't focus on maximizing shareholder value deliver such impressive returns? I guess my question is, are there really that many public organizations that don't still primarily focus on shareholder value, the old model you were describing, and other than companies like Unilever and Patagonia, which you mentioned in your book, but we all know are sort of the, the exquisite example of the new way of thinking. Are there many other companies that have a great story to tell? Not enough.
1: Mark, I mean, uh, I mean, and, and in some sense, that's why I write these articles and write a book like this, which is to try and point out that this dominant model hasn't had to perform. And again, on this front, it is tricky because the people who are most necessary in bringing about a change are benefiting enormously from this model. Since this model was established, CEO compensation, kind of in like to like, in real terms, has gone up at least 10x and probably closer to 20x, but just say for sake of argument, conservative, 10x in real terms. So, why would you be heavily motivated to change it? I mean, if you're Paul Pullman at Unilever, it's a moral question, right? And so he was motivated. do it because it was the right thing to do but there's lots and lots of kind of motivation for companies for the senior executives of companies to say let's not change this and they have boards who say well again once something gets established as the dominant model if you're the company that decides to say no we're not saying our goal is to maximize shareholder value and we're eliminating stock-based incentive compensation you know what would happen these <laughs> these people at the proxy voting firms like ISS, Institutional Shareholder Services, would write terrible reports about them because they're not following the dominant model. What's going to change it? I think it's two things. One is examples like Paul Bowman at Unilever and say there's a better way. And I think eventually the pension fund's will wake up and say, we're the biggest owners of public equities. And this isn't in the interests of our pensioners.
0: I don't know how much research you've done into the whole Great Resignation, the Great Resignation in America. But certainly we're seeing now that it's bleeding into other countries. But there's you know tens of millions of people quit their jobs last year. And I'm just curious as to whether or not you have any optics into who's leaving and if that is so widely distributed. So it's all levels of organizations that that may be a catalyst for the change that we're talking about. Like, in other words, you're going to have to change how you lead fundamentally if you're going to want to attract and retain people and stop this bleeding. Am I insane or what do you think?
1: (laughs) Not at all, Mark. No, the whole great resignation relates to another chapter in the book, the one on loyalty versus habit. So the way I think about COVID is... It is the greatest habit interrupter since at least World War II and maybe since the Great Depression. So either 75 or 100 years. And what people are now beginning to understand because kind of brain scientists have helped us understand that the brain loves kind of automaticity kind of more than anything else. So the brain seeks comfort, our subconscious, would like to do things that are comfortable and familiar. And so while we think it's a conscious thing, loyalty, I'm loyal to that product or service. Actually, loyalty is like the tip of the iceberg, right? The 5% that's above the water, 95% that's below the water is, is your subconscious saying, let's keep doing the thing that works, which is good and bad. Like for instance, it's one reason why people stick with models rather than changing them. But the reason, a dominant reason for the Great Resignation, in my view, is that a habit got interrupted. The habit of getting up in the morning, getting in your car, getting on transit, going to a job, working nine to five or eight to six or whatever you did, and getting back in your car and public transportation and going home. And that was a habit. And once that became ingrained as a habit, it doesn't have to defend itself The subconscious is saying, well, that's what you do. And if what you do is do a two hour commute into Manhattan every day, or into LA or San Francisco every day, you don't have to defend that and say, oh, come on, why are we spending four hours of every day, 20 hours a week in a car battling traffic? Because it's habit. COVID comes along, breaks that habit completely, Habits tend to be broken within six weeks or so, two years. <laughs> Habits totally broken. So that now the habit is rolling out of bed, making a cup of coffee, going to your computer and doing Zoom calls. That's habit. And the brain gets used to that. Your subconscious gets used to that and say, that's it. When that started to happen, that was called working remotely. So you weren't doing the normal thing. You were, quote, working remotely remotely as of now, working remotely means going to the office, <laughs> right? That's, yeah. that's the new remote, mm-hmm. and that's what the subconscious says. And so when companies say, okay, it's time to go back, the subconscious doesn't say back. The subconscious says, oh my God, they're asking us to do a completely new thing that takes me completely out of my comfort zone. And when that happens, when your habit is taken forcibly away from you, you reevaluated them on the basis of, you know, kind of, what do I think? Do I like my current job? Oh, well, here's, I, I don't like my boss much. I don't really find fulfillment in what I'm doing. And it's a two-hour commute. Wow, That's a dumb idea. I'm quitting. So that, to me, is the core reason for the great resignation.
0: I mean, I'm in complete agreement. So now... What's the advice that you're going to give to CEOs who still lean very heavily into wanting people back most of the time, inconsistent with what, you know, we know that workers want? So what's the advice that you you would give to all of us, CEOs and line leaders?
1: Yeah, well, it would be to recognize that there is a habit that you have conspired with them to build, right? You have said work at home. So you're part of that covid was the forcing mechanism but you're complicit in having created a new habit and if you want to change that habit you have got to think extremely carefully about habit change and how you make that habit change into what you would like and recognize that actually you might not be able to change the habit to exactly where you would want it to go but Unless you create ways for the person to slowly settle into a new habit and make that habit attractive enough for them, you're at the starting line. And if you have 50,000 employees or something that you've hired, recruited, trained up, and if rather than those 50,000 employees having a habit of working for you, instead not and go back to the starting line, then go ahead and and issue edicts like you all have to come back to work and then treat it as sort of disloyalty if you complain about coming back to work. I mean, I believe we're going to be in a permanent Hybrid mode.
0: So one thing that I'm picking up from you, which, you know, I, I have a big presence on Twitter and people are saying to me that we should get to pick what days we go in. So if they want us to come back, they being the boss or the CEO, then we should get to decide what day or days that we come in, depending upon how many they expect from us. And my whole thinking on this, honestly, Roger, is that that makes no sense while it's accommodating the employee and their own situation, if you and I work together and you decide to go in on Monday and I decide to go in on Tuesday, our ships are never gonna pass each other. And so what is the value of going into the office if we're not syncing up the days that everybody's expected to be in and not in?
1: Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I mean, I think if you wanna maintain your talent and keep your talent working productively, you're going to have to create reasons why they would want to be in the office. You know, if you don't have a good reason for them to being in the office, then you're just forcing them to do something they don't want to do. And you might be able to get away with it, but I wouldn't bet on it. And I wouldn't bet on you getting away with it with the best employees.
0: What's the most compelling story to tell people? Because we know that people are being told, because I said so, you know, we want you back in the office because we want you back in the office and, you know, take it or leave it kind of a thing.
1: And you're going to get exactly what you deserve if if you, if you do that. I think the compelling reasons are curated events, right? So there was no need for curation.
0: Define curation before you go on. Sure.
1: Where you as a manager would be saying, OK, what I need is us to make this big decision. And I need these following six people in the room together on the whiteboard, on chart, flip charts and whatever, and, and working to produce something. How can I arrange that day in a way that none of those six people would want to miss it? Right? And that means planning it out, saying. Giving people some time on them, giving them assignments and, and whatever, explaining to them what's going to happen in that day. And then when that day occurs, it is exciting. It's generative. Something good comes out of that day. We do that already for things like board meetings, right? Company off-sites, they're curated events. Day-to-day is just you're there at your desk because that's the way this works. Completely uncurated and so we're going to have to figure out what things require people in real time to be in one place in order to get the outcomes that we want to have. And then we're going to have to design those experiences, put the investment into to design those experiences so that people wouldn't miss it.
0: So this all sounds great, but isn't this placing an enormous amount of responsibility time on the manager? So it almost sounds incremental to me because I'm working at home like you are, but I'm also anticipating that on Wednesday we're all going to be together. So I've got to find time to figure out all the different things that we're going to do in this time together and then assign responsibilities to everybody. And do you think that they are generally capable of managing hybrid workforce? And more specifically, do they have the time to do this so that they could actually make these events so that people want to come to them? Because it's one thing to curate an event, and there's another to curate an event in ways that people went, I'm really glad I came in.
1: Yeah. Well, the general answer to your questions are no, 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 and no. Like, so it's going to be a new skill that is required that very few managers currently have. I would argue that the best of existing managers long before COVID Mm -hmm. had this skill and capability Mm -hmm. and recognized that this was a useful expenditure of their time. I, as you probably know, advise a bunch of CEOs and there's kind of one CEO. I'm just really impressed with her on this front. And she was talking me through in a call maybe about six months ago, the first post-COVID offsite of her senior leadership team. And I was just like blown away at how she had kind of arranged every last thing, including the pre-work and where they were going to do it and some sort of games and fun times and all of this. And I just came away from the conversation saying, well, I get why she's so successful. And she got great outcomes from this first meeting offsite, but it was natural for her. I didn't tell her, you got to curate the hell out of this offsite and make it fantastic. That just was natural for her. So I think some have this capability. Very few do because it has been command and control and you don't have to curate anything because they're there already. But if you were curating, and this is why, if you ask any white collar worker, how would you rate the average meeting that you participate in? What would be the sort of the median grade of a meeting? And I I think the most likely outcome would be C minus, probably.
0: That was before, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah. That's heading into this.
1: Meetings aren't curated in the corporate world. It's sort of like, I'm going to call a meeting and then we're going to maybe figure out you know, at like the first few minutes of the meeting, why aren't we actually here? And then we're just going to have a bunch of random conversation. That would be the average meeting. And so that's just not going to fly.
0: But if you're expecting people in the office two days a week, that's 100 meetings you're going to have to play. And that just, in other words, you're elevating... It used to be that people just came to work. It's like you came into the office and you worked. Now we're saying, come into the office only a few days a week. But when you come, we're going to create an event that's going to make it worthwhile for you. And it strikes me as very high bar for a lot of managers. So if I say to you, Roger... I want you back in the office, but when you come in, we're gonna have meetings that are gonna be curated and they're gonna be wonderful and they're gonna be really great opportunity for us to connect. And if I don't deliver on that every single time, then you're gonna come back to me and you're gonna say, tell me again why I'm coming into the office at all. I just think it's gonna be a real challenge to defend that if we elevate the expectation of the manager that
1: way. Yeah, yeah. but Mark, I mean, you gotta ask what's the alternative? (laughs) The alternative is all those people resign.
0: Well, but then there's a structural problem because in a lot of organizations, and this I think goes back, and I'm, I'm really interested in your confirming or denying this, my assessment is that when you, we go back 15 years ago, 12 years ago, to the Great Recession, that after that happened, that what a lot of companies did was to double up the expectations that their managers had where they were trying to run lean the organizations. And so they said to the manager, we need you to manage, but we also need you to be an individual contributor at the same time. And I don't know that we ever unwound that. And so if we're completely re-architecting the expectations of what the days in the office are going to look like, then you've got to give managers sufficient time to figure that out. And if they're an individual contributor, they're never going to have that because they're still being accountable for individual results separate from what the team is doing. So am I right? And what advice would you give to organizations in terms of thinking about how you're going to have to structure the expectations of your management team going forward?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, Mark, my views of what I call the decision factory. So what do people in these office towers do? They're not people like people in the plants. People in the plants actually make products or deliver services if it's a service operation like a, a bank branch. So we know what they do, but what do all these people in office towers do? They do not make products or services. What do they create? And the answer is decisions. They're decision factories. And they've now become the biggest part of the wage bill of most large companies. And there's this interesting productivity change that happened. So until the early 80s, productivity in America marched forward at 3 to 4% a year, right? Productivity improvement. And since then, it's been like 1% to 1.5% a year. But if you do studies on service operations and manufacturing operations, you find that the productivity is increasing at 3 to 4% a year, just like it always did. So it begs the question, how the hell do we get one to one and a half percent productivity increases, right? How does that math works? Well, the only way the math works is if there is zero productivity increase in the decision <laughs> or, negative. <factor>. <laughs> or <laughs> negative, could be negative, right? It, it's either zero or negative, right? So my view is, and what happens if your product or service factories aren't increasing productivity at three to 4% a year? You go out of business, basically, right? Because if you do 3 to 4% a year for 20 years, you leave that company that has had zero productivity increases in the dust. So the only saving grace for the decision factories of America is that they all suck. So you're not disadvantaged if your decision factory is pathetic at making decisions efficiently, effectively. So this is a long answer to your question, but there is such room for productivity enhancement in the decision factories. Huge room. So where's the manager gonna get the time to curate meetings by stopping doing all this stupid ass stuff that goes on in decision factories today, right? Where you come to a meeting, you have 10 people in a meeting all day long and, and you don't come up with a decision, right? That's a defect in the process. That's rework. You have to come back and do another meeting the next week. That's just rework. That's like you build a car and then you have to tear it down apart because you you did it wrong and have to build it back up. We have rework. We have a kind of inventory lying around, like inventory are kind of you know reports and analyses. Finished goods inventory are decisions that we supposedly made, but nobody does anything with them. So what we need to do is see managers say, In this new world, how can we make the decision factory work so much better? And that's going to take more time on having awesome meetings than having another stupid ass meeting.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, I did not anticipate that we were going to go into this, but this couldn't be more topical right now. And I'm hearing from people on Twitter back and forth. I happen to believe in hybrid. I don't believe in 100% remote. I think people need connection. I think teams and organizations need connection. I think those connections are what make remote working possible long term. But there are plenty of people that disagree with me who think, you know, we should never have to go back because managers don't make it worthwhile and I can do my job just as effectively at home. And so, you know, this is just holding up the old way as opposed to embracing what we've already proven can work. And uh, you've given me some very good ideas in terms of how we might want to be thinking about this, particularly around the whole issue of habits and the psychology and emotional sense that people have about being asked to come back to work. It's like completely reinventing what they were doing, even though we think, well, you should remember what it's like to come back to the office. You used to do this for your whole career, but you've clarified that in a very unique way. So thank you.
1: Oh, you're welcome. And there are two relevant chapters in the book on this. One is on habits versus loyalty, and the other is on the decision factories and how to think about Running a decision factory. Now, both of those chapters were written long before COVID, but COVID just brings to the fore some of the things that managers need to think about more today. It's more urgent that they get thinking about them. I mean, I, for one, am happy about the great resignation. I really I am. am. I'm happy about it because People are making choices and not running on autopilot, and it's gonna force businesses to up their game in ways that will make them way better, way better. There's no, no question in my mind that this is a forcing mechanism. And one thing I'd I'd say on this too is that there are gonna be all sorts of models. One of my clients, which is a tech company, been around long, long before COVID, is 100% virtual. It always has been. Everybody in the company works remotely. And they are very successful. Am I saying that that's what companies should do? No. But what I'm saying is there's a wide array of choices you can make on this front. And right now, the only bad choice is ordering your people back to work. That's just bad. And I would say that to any CEO who says it unhappily <laughs> to argue with them if they, if they say they it's so important for them. I'd say, well, if, if it's so important to have people working together in the office, then you're screwed because you're going to order them back and they're all going to quit. And so if those people were so important to you, you're screwed.
0: Well, I want to talk about workplace cultures. And you say that they can only be changed by altering how people actually work with each other. So in light of this conversation, You know, how do you sustain cultures when people are working remotely? Describe what you mean and explain how leaders can influence employees to begin behaving differently and establish new norms.
1: Sure, sure. So the most typical models for changing culture are to have some new CEO come in and say, mandate, this is going to be our culture or you do something with the formal structure. Are we gonna change our culture by pushing decision rates down, decentralizing, flattening, or whatever. And in my experience now, 40 years of watching this, those things don't work at all. If you actually wanna change culture, what you have to do is change how you, the CEO, work with other people. Because Kremlin watching doesn't happen only in Moscow. It happens in every organization where people watch very closely how senior leaders in the company interact with other people. So if a senior leader says, hey, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions. So if somebody comes to them with a problem, they beat them up, let's say publicly in a meeting for not having come with a solution. You will have a culture that says never talk to your boss about a problem hide the problems for as long as possible, because if you come to your boss with a problem, he or she will beat the crap out of you. Then everybody else throughout the organization says that is the norm. That is now kind of clearly has been sanctioned by senior management. That's what senior management actually does. So that is explicit sanctioning of that. And so anybody else in the company can have that and that becomes your culture. If you want to change that culture, that same CEO, next time somebody comes with a problem, say, okay, you know, I like solutions better than problems, but I'm sure as hell happy that I know this problem exists. Now, how do we tackle it? What amount of that problem can you tackle? And what amount of that problem do you need my help in tackling? Let's figure that out. And we'll be on a path to solving that problem. People will all watch. And the culture will become, you know, it's better to have solutions than problems. But if you have a problem that's bigger than you can solve on your own, it's way better to tell your boss that you're in that situation, because chances are he or she will constructively figure out who's going to solve that problem and how. Then you'll get that culture. And there's no other way to get culture change.
0: Very good. Thank you. I'm glad I asked that. Everyone, let's take a very quick break here, and we're going to return with the Heartbeat Round. A quick reminder that Mitel Networks is this podcast's sole sponsor because it fully embraces our message of empathy, compassion, and caring as a means to elevating workplace leadership all around the world. Mitel also loves the upcoming Heartbeat Round segment and invites you to learn more about them at mitel.com forward slash mark. Roger, we have a tradition on the podcast where we ask our guests a few quick answer questions and we hope will give us a little greater insight into your personal influences and life philosophy. We call it the heartbeat round because we want you to answer each question in a heartbeat. Are you up for this?
1: I certainly am. That sounds like fun.
0: All right. Wonderful. Something every manager should do to ensure their employees remain committed.
1: Treat each of them as an individual, not as a member of a class.
0: Trait you most admire in other people?
1: Uh, Reflectiveness, the ability to reflect on what they've done, how they've thought, to see whether there isn't a better way to think or a better way to do something.
0: Magazine or newspaper, you never miss reading.
1: You know, there is none. I pick and choose. Probably I read more. Financial Times than any other newspaper, but I can't say that I never miss a a day. A book you wish everyone in the world would read? Lord of the Flies. How come? Because it's a lesson in the importance of leadership. We are always a heartbeat away from that situation where the lack of leadership will cause the very worst of human behavior and emotions to come out. That's why leadership is so very, very important. And I'm glad you focus uh, so much on leading from the heart.
0: Thank you. A cultural value every organization should have. Um, forgiveness. Hmm. That's never come up by the way, Roger. The quality that derails the most leadership careers.
1: <sighs> Egocentricity.
0: Most important thing the last two years has taught you.
1: Resilience. Yeah. This has been very, very bad. But people have been resilient. The economy has been resilient. Humans have a high level of resilience that we can count on.
0: Your synonym for the word heart?
1: Um, Care.
0: That's actually a great answer that no one's ever come up with as well. And very interesting. One valuable insight you gained specifically from writing your book?
1: The idea, (laughs) as I wrote all the chapters, that this is a question of ownership. Do your models own you? And they do if they don't have to perform and you feel obligated to keep on using them. then that's as if they own you versus you owning them. You'll put them to work. And if they don't work, you replace them. So that sort of came clearer as I wrote the book.
0: Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life.
1: Go away for a week, unplug, and just think about what is your reason for existing in the universe.
0: And one subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on? Philosophy. Thoughtful and provocative answers there, Roger. So thank you for going through that with me. (laughs) It was fun. Well, they're great answers. So thank you. Before you go, you have 14 different chapters in your book. I read them all. 14 different ways of thinking differently about management. And so is there any one that we didn't discuss that you want to emphasize for our management audience?
1: Well, I would say the book is modular in the sense that if you've got an issue that's vexing you about some aspect of management, chances are one of the chapters will have hopefully practical, actionable advice for you on how to change your model to a model that'll get you more of what you want. This is all about you. I want you as a reader, you as a manager, to have more powerful models to get done what you want to get done. It's not an advocacy to say, I think you should manage this way. It's more, if you want to get done something that's important to you, what's the model that will get you closer to that?
0: Very good. Thank you so very much, Roger Martin. On behalf of my podcast audience, I really appreciate you joining us.
1: Mark, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time with me.
0: And best of success with you and your book. Thank you. Before we say goodbye, I wanted to make sure that you knew that I have a big presence on Twitter, LinkedIn, and even Facebook. So if you're not already doing so, please join me at any of these platforms where I love discussing leadership and the lead from the heart philosophy specifically. Our brilliant theme music is the jazz classic, Take the A-Train, written by Billy Strayhorn and is performed by the extraordinary BBC Big Band Orchestra. As always, I wanna thank my wonderful team, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Randy Yaunt, Carrie Finnessy, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz, and... I now leave you with my two consistent reminders. Number one, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And number two, love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now.